you guys could be seated, and um, if you could open a Bible to Jonah chapter 4, that's where we're going to be tonight, uh, this afternoon together. Uh, I just want to say, you know, obviously last week was really hard, and I know it was a hard week for all of us as a result of that, and I just want to say thank you for all the encouragement. Uh, If you've been giving encouragement, not only to my family, uh, but to us as a church, to one another as a church, just the reaching out and the hearing that I've had, I've heard of you guys just encouraging one another. Um, It's just, it's making an impact in so many people's lives, and I think this is such a good thing to acknowledge and say even right now. Um, And I'm excited even for this chili feed afterwards. Uh, We might regret it later, but we'll be really excited in the moment, and uh, that'll be another great opportunity just to, to talk and to encourage each other. Um, and uh, right now, this is another great opportunity to encourage one another in God's Word together in Jonah 4, and that's the reason why we're here, right? We want to hear from God, and so I'm going to read these 11 verses, and then we're going to begin to kind of walk our way through them together here, Uh, but I'll read beginning in verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Uh, Those who know me well uh, know that I don't like loose ends. Uh, I like everything to be wrapped up and buttoned up, especially when it comes to a story. And my wife knows me the best in this. So Elizabeth, even when we're watching a film, and if the film ends like most films do in the last 20 years where they just leave all the loose ends up so that you could like artistically and just whatever you want, imagine what the ending would actually be like. Um, She'll often maybe even mock me and just begin to ask the questions that she knows are going through my mind, right? Do they get married? Does he get the job? Do they die? You know, all these different things. It just bothers me so much. So when I watch the movies I like the most are the ones that when before the credits roll, it kind of shows someone's picture and it's like, 
Jerry and Rebecca got married and for 45 years and Joe became the CEO of this company or whatever it is because it's just like, yes, you're tying up all the things that I have questions about. And uh, I bring this up because when I come into Jonah, the ending is the same way. It's abrupt. I don't like it, you know, and maybe you do. Maybe you're one of those good millennials that's just like, yeah, what do I want it to be, right? And um, so I'm wondering what happens to Nineveh, right? What happens to Jonah? What happens to the cows, you know? This is all the questions that are going through our mind. And, but there is a big reason why there is this cliffhanger at the end of Jonah, because where we're left hanging is where our heads and our hearts are meant to kind of open up to the voice of God in our lives. The cliffhanger is the point that this book is driving home into the hearts of God's people. And what we find here is a massive contrast in compassion. Um, The chapter is all about compassion. I mean, the word translated into English for us in your ESV, if you're following the ESV here, it says the word pity, uh, but it literally means to look on with compassion. Which, if we're honest, I mean, Amy did a great job leading us in prayer tonight in our service, and and our hearts are heavy. There's many things going on in our country that are just difficult and and tragic that this week it has not been difficult to think about things that maybe are pulling at our heartstrings with compassion for those who are suffering. Uh, So there's a natural inclination that we can have to be compassionate towards those who are hurting Uh, But also, I think this is why it's so comforting and grounding to read in this chapter, in verse 2, how Jonah uses this same word that we use to translate as compassionate. He says, God, he uses the word rehem, O Lord, right? I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. That's the word compassionate. It's the same word as down in you pity the plant. That's compassionate. So this is a word that means from the womb, like a parent feels for their hurting child. It's the word that Jonah's using to describe our God. The, the images of a parent watching their child in the hospital, writhing in pain, wishing they could do something for their child. I mean, I remember when my daughter was much younger and she broke her hand and just the agony that we went through for hours together. And I just was like in agonizing, like, oh, I wish I could do something other than just sit here, right, and be with you. That's what this is saying. It's the idea of compassion. So here's the cliffhanger. Jonah and God are described with the same exact kind of compassion, but with two very different objects. And so we're going to see this contrast in compassion. We're just going to walk through the story. There's not any clear-cut points to really make along the way that would break this out better for you. We're just going to look at this contrast in compassion that's meant to, number one, wake us up, and number two, realign our hearts. That's what Jonah 4 is doing for us. So let's let's just walk through these 11 verses together. And in verses 1 through 4, we're looking at God's compassion. That's what we're really seeing here. In verse 1, we notice that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he's angry. Well, what is he angry about? That's, That's what we should be asking. We'll look in verse 10. Mike looked at this last week. It says, when God saw what they did, how they repented, right, of their violence and their sin, this is horrible, wicked city of Nineveh, capital of the Assyrians, says how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so Jonah's angry. 
right? He's angry. God said he was going to bring judgment, and he's no longer going to bring judgment because they're repenting. I think it's, again, difficult for us to to resonate with Jonah because we go, well, that's a good thing, right? But I think in a real sense, if you're with us the first week of Jonah chapter 1, I tried to lay out for us how just brutally violent this nation was. And so in a certain way, this could almost be like during the midst of World War II, if Hitler and all of his other leaders sort of came to their senses and repented, they said, wow, what we're doing is really messed up. And they went to God and they said, we are wrong before you, God, would you forgive us? And God says, you know what? Yes, I'll forgive, right? We would have a problem with that probably. We wouldn't want somebody like a Hitler to be sort of let off for all the wickedness that they've done. And so Jonah is exceedingly displeased because God was compassionate to Jonah's enemy, capital Nineveh. Then Jonah proceeds to lay out the reasoning for why he runs from God's in the first place. What's his reason? Because he knows who God is. He knows that God is a compassionate God. What did he know to be true of God? Well, we just looked at it. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. It's really interesting here because Jonah doesn't make up what he thinks to be true of God. Like much of us in our modern sense, we go, who do you think God is? And we go, well, to me, God is like this, or I like to think of God like this, right? And this is sort of how people talk about who God is in our modern context. But that's not what Jonah's doing here. No, he's stealing his ideas from the Bible. He trusts and believes God is who he is, and what God has revealed to be true about himself in his word. Well, look at what he's pulling from. He's pulling from our call to worship tonight, actually. It's Exodus chapter 34. And this is a very interesting thing to us because it's the place in Scripture where God's people have just been delivered out of their physical slavery from the nation of Egypt, another big, massive, cruel nation. And they've been delivered from that slavery, and God is giving them this law. He's giving them the way that they're supposed to live in their lives now, how they're supposed to relate to each other, how they're supposed to relate to God. And in response to God's miraculous deliverance and salvation in their life, as they're wandering in the wilderness, they grow impatient with God. And while Moses is up on the mountain, they build a golden calf and bow down and worship it. And they say, this is the God that delivered us from our slavery. This is the God who has saved us, and this angers God, right? Just like a a good husband would be jealous for the wife that he loves, right? God is jealous for his people. And so Israel deserves justice. They deserve the full weight of God's righteous anger, but God gives them mercy, And after he shows them mercy and restores them in a relationship to him, what does he reveal to be true about himself? Well, it's it's on the screen for you there. This exact phrasing, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." I mean, does this story, if you're familiar with it, does it sound at all familiar to the story here in Jonah? Well, yeah. People who deserve the right judgment of God, yet God shows them compassion? I mean, 
It's kind of laughable, Jonah's response. What does he say? I told you, God. This is why I ran. I told you. This is like the worst I told you so in the history of I told you so. It's like, I told you that you were a God like this, and look, you're doing it, right? I mean, you're, you're so compassionate. He is mad at God for saving his enemy. They repent of their violence, the thing that probably caused him to hate them in the first place. And they repent of that. And Jonah's response is like a, oh, great, Right? But are they receiving a different grace or a different love than Jonah and all of God's people have actually received themselves? God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is my name. These are my attributes. You could take them to the bank. You should expect them from me. We named our our third-born son um, August William. Uh, His name means majestic warrior. Yeah. He's got some big expectations in his life. Okay, so we nicknamed him Gus to kind of just lower the expectations a little bit. Um, But could you imagine, right? I mean, he's, he's an amazing kid. But could you imagine if Gus grows up and is a very sheepish and cowardly man in the world, right? I don't have any inclination that's who he's going to become. That's not who he is now. But could you imagine, like, you could say in a real way, he did not live into his name, right? Because his name means a majestic warrior. I mean, now there are some names that people give their kids these days that we hope they don't live into, right? But, but a lot of us, we, we hope, you know, there's names that people live into, but that is never the case with God. We don't have to go, I hope he lives into his name. I hope he acts according to who he says that he is. I hope this is a good day. I hope he's compassionate towards me today. We don't have to think that way with God because we should expect him to act the way that he is and the way that he says he is. So in his anger, what's Jonah's response? Verse 3, oh Lord, please kill me. It's better to die than to live. Yes, this is absolutely dramatic, but think about it. Right? We can get this way when God works, but not in the way that we would hoped he would work. When we think of who God is and we dream up, okay, God is this way, that's going to be applied this way, and he doesn't fulfill that plan or application of it, it can create a dark cloud of despair in our life. And so this is God's compassion, but then verse 4, it transitions to sort of looking at Jonah's compassion. Verse 4, God speaks to Jonah and he asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, how is anger making your life any better? Does that make you feel better? Does it make anything better, Jonah? Verse 5, Jonah leaves Nineveh. He goes east of the city and makes a booth there for himself. He's seeking shade from the sun. He's seeking comfort while he's watching to see what becomes the city. So God has relented of this judgment that he said he was going to bring. Now, Jonah goes outside the city, as it were, to look out and go, maybe... Maybe God will change his mind. You know, maybe, maybe he will bring this judgment. So he's seeking the shade outside of the city, watching to see what's going to become of the city. Then God appoints the second thing in this book. The first thing he appointed was a fish. The second thing he's appointed now is a plant. And it miraculously grew up, and it came over Jonah to shade him. Do you see that? And it brings him comfort. So then here it is, verse 6, the very first time in the book that Jonah is happy right? And the only time. 
But not only is he happy, we're told that he is exceedingly glad. I mean, this is a nice piece of shade, right? Why? Why is he exceedingly glad? Because of the plant. Jonah's finally glad because he's got some physical comfort, finally something to bring some peace into his life. I was convicted about this. I saw it, I don't know, a year ago maybe. But um, a guy named Isaac Adams, he's a pastor and author, he said, if we, only, if we are only content when circumstances are good, then it's not the Lord we're content in. That's exactly what Jonah's experiencing here. Then in verse 7, dawn comes, God appoints the third thing in the book, right? a worm, and it attacks the plant, and it kills it so it dies. Then God appoints the fourth thing in the book, a scorching east wind that makes Jonah feel less comfortable, and the sun beats down on him so that he feels faint. This drives Jonah to once again say, I wish I could just die. God, kill me. Right? That would be better than living. I mean, when you read the book of Jonah, and especially the situation, I mean, don't you just want to hang out with Jonah? Right? Don't you just want to be his friend just for a nice long weekend, not an exhausting person at all to hang out with? I mean, no, it doesn't seem like a refreshing person to be around. And the one thing that is just so amazing to me is God does not seem to be exhausted by Jonah. Right? He's not done with him. His compassion is for Jonah too. And so we come to verses 10 and 11 where God speaks for the lengthiest time in the whole book and it's only two verses. And God points out what he pities and what Jonah pities. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did it make you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God gives the plant and he takes it away as an object lesson for Jonah. God gives a good thing and then he takes that thing away and exposes Jonah. And notice what God says to Jonah this time. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? For the plant. Not about the plant, for the plant. Somehow Jonah has developed a, an attachment to this plant. Right? Jonah had compassion for the death of the plant. Jonah, do you even see your heart right now? Right? These people don't even know their right hand from their left. That's how darkened their hearts are. Right? I could probably sum up for you every single one of my parenting failures is a misplacement of my compassion. It's, it's, a, it's a moment where I really want a clean house and someone takes an entire box of Rice Krispie cereals and dumps it all over our pantry or something, you know? And in that moment, I am more upset that, like, I need to clean up those billion little Rice Krispies, right, that are going to snap, crackle, and pop someday, right? or aren't going to anymore, I had to clean all that up and misplace that over an object that really doesn't matter instead of placing my compassion on my child and going, you know what, let's clean it up, right? I mean, we all can, can get this. We put, put our compassion on an object versus a person, and Jonah has exactly done that. He has compassion for the plant. Why? Because of what the plant gives him. It's giving him something. The arrow is pointing to himself, right? He doesn't love the plant in and of itself. He loves what the plant provides him. I don't love Rice Krispie. I don't even eat that stuff, right? But I love what a clean floor gives me, right? 
Well, where is, that's where Jonah's pity is. Where's God's compassion placed? It's on a people, right? It's on Nineveh. Verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This also much cattle seems like a really weird way to end. A weird thing to even bring up. Why the cattle? But it really is it just a way, I believe the author is trying to show us God's care for creation. His care for all of creation here. He's saying, look at this city, Jonah. It's almost the same size as Gresham, isn't it? Look at this city filled with people who walk in darkness. They don't even know what's right and wrong, but the plant catches your eye. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. I think we need to remember that this was read aloud. This book would be read aloud to God's people back when Israel first got their hands on it. I mean, they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have a Bible they could, like, throw in their backpack. You know, they couldn't go, you know, out with their Tommy Bahama chair and overlook the Columbia River or something like that and just have devotions with their Bible and God. They couldn't do that. The only way you would hear the Bible read to you is if we gathered in a room like this and someone would stand up and read it for everybody to hear. So just imagine that. Just imagine people, God's people, hearing this book read. Imagine this. The reader finishes the book and also much cattle. Right? The reader would maybe then like look around the room. I mean, just think of the effect that would have, the cliffhanger of that. What kind of effect would that have? It would leave this uncomfortable silence that would make you as a person who calls God your God. It would cause you to just sit there in the uncomfortable silence and go, yeah, should he not? Should he not pity them? I mean, if they don't get the cattle thing like we do, maybe the laughs would die down eventually, right? And they would go, oh, wait. Right? See, Israel was eventually going to be taken over by Babylon. Assyria would invade, then Babylon would invade, and they would be spread out into exile when the book of Jonah was, was actually written and given to them. Right? So they would be reading this book while they're in exile. We looked at the book of Daniel together. It's kind of during that first part of Daniel. They would be given this book during that time when it would be given to them. They'd be reading it in the midst of their enemies. They're surrounded by people who have conquered them and made them the lowest class citizens in society. So the laughs and the feelings and the superiority of Jonah, they would dissipate when this is read because it would have this immediate effect on them. Oh, wait, this is about us, right? God loves our enemies, do we? See, God is so compassionate that it will annoy us sometimes. We want him to hold a grudge against the same people that we do but he won't. And so if our spirit lacks compassion for others, then we immediately can know that we are out of touch with how the compassion of God has touched our own lives. That's what God's people are meant to feel, what Jonah's meant to see. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's meant to do those two things. Number one, it's meant to wake us up. It's meant to wake us up. It's what happens to Jonah because sometimes we need a wake-up call and God is more than willing to give it to us. Let me just think, God sent Jonah a storm. 
He sent him a fish. He sent a revival, right? He sent some questions. He sent a plant. He sent a worm. He sent the wind. He sent some final questions. Jonah gets the full spectrum of the ways that God wakes us up, right? Storms and fish and shade. He sends at times calamity in our lives, and he sends provision. He's not playing games with Jonah, though. He's not being mean to Jonah. He's grabbing the smelling salt, as it were, and waking him up to remember that God's purpose in Jonah's life is not to send him some shade so that he would be comfortable. He's waking him up to what? Well, if, if you and I knew Hebrew well, and I'm going to be very clear, I don't. It was like the worst class I ever had to take in my life. So, um, if you want to know your Hebrew, talk to Josh Matthews. I think he teaches it. So, um, but uh, man, I, I'm just thankful to the Lord for Logos Bible software. Um, I can read that. And, um, but if you and I were to understand and hear Hebrew read, and we were to hear it read aloud for the first time, we would quickly see what God is waking up Jonah to. There's a really important word in this book, and your Bible is most likely making constant footnotes in your English. There's a little number Look at the very bottom. It's continually bringing it up to you. I should be on the screen. There's this Hebrew word, ra'ah. It's translated evil. It's translated at times disaster, discomfort in our story. So just look at this and think about what God is doing in the life of Jonah here, what he's waking him up to. Look in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their ra'ah has come up before me. Look at verse 7, they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this ra'ah has come upon us. They're trying to figure out the source of this evil. Then verse 8 of chapter 3, right? Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his ra'ah and from the violence that is in his hands. Look at verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their ra'ah, God relented. Verse 1, but it was ra'ah to Jonah. God, that's messed up. Verse 6, the last time. God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his ra'ah. Do you see it? I hate the Ra'ah of Nineveh, so I'm going to send some Ra'ah on the sea because I want them to repent of their Ra'ah. Now I'm going to appoint a plant to save you from your Ra'ah. This is coming full circle, God giving the shade and taking it away. This is an object lesson that exposes Jonah's evil in his heart. And in a very similar way for us, I mean, there is nothing more important to God than to awaken us to our own. I mean, look at verse 2, Jonah's confession. What a, what a two words are so powerful. I knew, I knew that you were this way. He has theological convictions, not even doubts, it seems. I knew, yet I did not want it to be true in fill-in-the-blank sort of way. There is a disconnect between his knowledge and his desire. That's why Francis Schaeffer so convictingly said once, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. 
Sinclair Ferguson, his great commentary on the book of Jonah, he just calls this the Jonah syndrome. I'll just read for you what he says. He says, this was a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition, but it raises an issue no less disturbing about our own lives as Christians. Could the same be said about us? Do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce of our fields, or perhaps the contents of our garage or home? than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The statistics of our giving or praying or going in the cause of Christ throughout the earth provide embarrassing reading to the church. They raise very real questions about whether we have begun to rid ourselves of the Jonah syndrome. Uh, Burke Parsons, who I I haven't checked in on him in forever. I don't know him personally, but I think he works for Ligonier. He said this years ago. I've never forgot it. He said, if God answered your prayers, would your neighbor know Christ or would you have lots of stuff? I mean, this isn't really about Nineveh, right? It's about Jonah. We keep thinking it's about Nineveh, but it's really not. It's about us. The whole story and the way it's written is to wake us up to our ra'ah. God is wanting to get our attention, and the way he does that often is by giving and taking away. So do we have that Jonah syndrome? If we do, God wants to realign our hearts. That's the last purpose. That's the good news, right? right Jonah thought God went too far. His compassion had a line and God crossed it so much that he said it was ra'ah to him, right? What could God do that would make you think that he went too far? I've been trying to ask myself that all week. Could he do something to where I would go, that's too far, God? I know you said that, you're that way. I know we're supposed to expect that, but not in that way. See, God sends us storms, fish, plants, worms, winds, maybe not literally, but he gives and he takes, but what will make you share his heart, right? What will actually realign it? Well, there's only one thing. There's only one thing. See, the only thing that he sent you that will not just wake you up to your ra'ah, but will transform you is seeing that he has ultimately sent you his son to die for your Ra. That seems too far. See, Jonah represented Israel, right? But, but a better Jonah was sent by God into the world. Jesus... He didn't go outside the city to see the city burn. No, we're told in Hebrews 13, Jesus suffered outside the city in order to save the city with his own blood. So the author tells us, therefore, let us go to him outside the city and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. You see, Jesus experienced his greatest 
discomfort, not because he didn't have shade, but because he was being crucified. And it wasn't because he lacked compassion, but because he had it in its fullest sense. His compassion made a way for you, who we are told biblically was an enemy of God, to become a child of God, so that when you begin to think about who your God is, you know that he has a compassion for you that comes from the womb, right? Like a parental kind of compassion in your life. His compassion drove him to save you. If anything seems too far, that's, that's it. So Jesus is so different than Jonah, and what a contrast upon contrasts isn't it? Jonah's character drove him to want to take life. Jesus' character drove him to want to give his own. See, Jonah is a book about a good God that loves people so much, people like us, that he won't allow us to be centered on ourselves. He wants to show his people that, that we are no different from anyone else in this world, even though if we rank differently in sin in our minds, that we are not better, we are just fumbling our way through life, and we wouldn't know our left hand from our right if it weren't for the grace of Jesus in our lives. So, I think the big temptation now is if we are to close a book like Jonah, the great temptation is to think, I need to be more compassionate. That's what Jonah's about. I need to be more compassionate, and that's all. If that's all we're thinking when we leave a place like this tonight, we are going to fail, and our hearts won't be realigned. In a real sense, that feels like me walking into an NBA dunk contest being like, I'm going to dunk. I'm going to do it, right? I wish that could happen, but it's not going to happen, right, unless we lower the hoop to like six feet, okay? Right, that's also as effective as me hoping to see a balloon float that I filled with my own hot air. It's just not going to happen, right? We've all through a birthday party and seen it happen. We try to fill up the balloons and they're all on the floor and it's kind of depressing, right? We want to see those balloons float. But the only way to keep that balloon off the ground in our lives is if we keep hitting it to try to keep it up, Right? That's what it is with our lives. We go, I'm going to be more compassionate. Just keep hitting the balloon. I got to get back at it. I screwed up again. I fell back into sin. You know what? I'm going to be different this time. Shape up. All right? Others need me. All right. I'm going to get back in. Start reading my Bible. You know, I'm going to start doing all these things. I'm going to try to be more compassionate this week. If I'm woken up to my lack of compassion, I could just try to hit the balloon every day and say, I'm going to try to be more compassionate, but I'm going to get tired and I'm going to get frustrated and I'm going to fail. And that's the problem, right? This is exactly why C.S. Lewis even said, no one knows how bad they are until they try to be really good. I mean, just think about how you feel anxious and you just try to tell yourself, stop feeling anxious and you try to be at peace. It's just not effective, right? It's like hitting the balloon. But then think about when you sit down and you have the gift of a beautiful sunset that you can see. The calm just falls over you, doesn't it? Think about those times you tried to be really humble, but your pride kept rearing its ugly head. You're just hitting the balloon. But then do you remember when you went to Zion National Park? I've never been, wanted to go. 
You've been up to Crown Point even. You've been somewhere amazing, and you stood there, and you felt really small. You don't have to try to tell yourself to feel that way, though. Right? What if we left here, and we, the point of Jonah wasn't to make us just dwell on our lack of compassion, but instead we dwelt on the compassion of God for us. And in every moment, he has that from the womb sort of care for you. I think you'd find some gospel helium. Right? You might find the cure to the Jonah syndrome. That God saves and his salvation is even uncomfortable for us at times. But praise God, his compassion is for us. Father, I do pray tonight that as we consider through communion and through singing and through your word, just your great compassion for your world, that our hearts would be realigned to you, Lord. Lord, you do give and take away. And I think we all are going through that in different ways even right now. But Lord, we thank you that you have sent us and given us Jesus. And your compassion is on full display through him at the cross. So help us to dwell on your compassion for us tonight in such a way, Lord, that our hearts would soar with the kind of compassion that you're wanting to see us bear fruit in this world. So God, would you um, just do a work in our lives that we really need you to do? Would you help us, Lord, just to trust you? Would you help us to see what you're wanting us to see? In Christ's name, we pray these things.